At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, it is our privilege to partner with local churches both in the United States and around the world in training men for the gospel ministry. If your church supports CBTS with $200 a month and a commitment to pray for us, any student in your church can attend CBTS tuition-free. To learn more about how you can partner with us in providing informed scholarship with Pastoral Heart, visit cbtseminary.org. You are listening to Sermon Select on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. Now, I ask that they read that, uh, that Hebrews chapter 8 be read, and the title of my message is The Hermeneutics of Baptist Covenant Theology. And that's a large topic because it covers the issue of what are hermeneutics uh, and uh, what kind of hermeneutics um, do we employ, especially studying the covenants, and can you be a Baptist and still a covenantalist, and all this other stuff that we see floating out there today. Um, the issue of hermeneutics is at the center of any doctrine we believe. Because if you, if you ask to define hermeneutics in general, it would be uh, the principles by which we study um, literature. Sacred hermeneutics would be the principles of study for the sacred literature of the Bible. How do we interpret these things? And there are principles that have been generally agreed upon both by secular authors when they study history and so forth, but especially there have been agreed upon principles of interpretation that Christians since the Reformation particularly have agreed upon. So when we say the hermeneutics of Baptist covenant theology, I guess what I'm saying is this. We don't have any distinct hermeneutics that haven't been used before. In fact, we haven't come up with a new hermeneutic, hermeneutic that makes us Baptist and covenantal theologians. The hermeneutics that we use in our study of Scripture are the accepted hermeneutics of the evangelical and reformed faith at broad. The difference is, I believe, that we have more consistently applied those hermeneutics to the text of Scripture and the progressive revelation of Scripture to formulate our Baptist covenant theology. Now, um, there are some that say, why study covenant theology as a Baptist to begin with? Because Baptists can't be covenant theologians. Have you ever heard that one before? Um, of course, that displays a great deal of ignorance to say something like that, because uh, before 1900 and before the influx uh, or tidal wave of dispensationalism that flowed into the United States, Europe and the United States, Baptists were generally covenant theologians. And we'll talk about that this afternoon as we study the founders of the Southern Baptist Convention and their covenant theology. But covenant theology among Baptists has come to such a low ebb today, and, and it's, it's such a minority position that uh, many people dismiss it, both Baptists and Presbyterians dismiss that Baptists can believe in the covenants of God and have a covenant theology. And yet, 
I believe, as as you do, I'm sure, that the covenants of God is a key to understanding the scriptures and God's work with men, God's relationship with man. Everyone has a theology of the covenants, though. And that includes the dispensationalists. The words in the Bible, it's like some of you who may have heard some member of your congregation, you've preached, you've just read a passage on election and and predestination. Someone comes to you and says, I don't believe in election and predestination. And your response is what? Well, you have to believe something about it. It's in the Bible. And it's the same way with covenants. We have to believe something. Another reason to study covenant theology for Baptists is because there's such differences between us today. And I'm talking of Calvinistic Baptists. Um, we may believe the doctrines of grace, the five points of Calvinism, and have fellowship around them. But when it comes to understanding and agreeing upon God's covenant theology in the Scripture, we have many differences. And I don't believe that there's going to be a real unity among Calvinistic Baptists until we clarify um, the doctrine of the covenants of Scripture. Because those doctrines are related to things like the law and the gospel. How do we understand that? And for the Christian, what law are we talking about in the Christian life that we're to obey? And should we preach obedience even? And then you throw out the issue of the Sabbath, which is a major division among Calvinistic Baptists today. Um, I'm not going to do it, but I could list to you churches around the nation where there's been major division, where we thought we were in unity and harmony to begin with. And then as we work through the covenant and the law of God and and the Sabbath principle and things of that nature, we find out, uh oh, we didn't understand it this way. And and so there's really a low level of understanding of covenant theology in the Bible and answering these questions about the law of God, the Sabbath. Theonomy has infected Calvinistic Baptist life because of the influence of covenant theology. Um, on and on we could go with various issues, uh, even the federal visionism that has raised its head in the last few years is an error in the understanding of God's covenants, and it's affecting uh, not only Presbyterians, but our Baptist brothers. So to, to enter into the issue of studying the covenants is a necessity, and I am hoping that as time goes on and the errors, these other errors, bear their uh, rotten fruit that we will ask more clearly, okay, what does the Bible teach about God's redemptive work through his covenants? And let us come together around that common understanding and build in unity. But again, you have to start with hermeneutics because the hermeneutics that you use to study the Bible will determine what theology you come out with. And one of my great um, sorrows is, is to learn in talking with students, both at Baptist and Pedo-Baptist seminaries, is that sometimes they really are not studying biblical hermeneutics very well. Um, in fact, sometimes their study of hermeneutics is so diluted by studying all the weird stuff out there that they never get to the basic biblical hermeneutics that we need. And so they graduate from seminary. Uh, without a clear, sound, 
and method of hermeneutics on which to study the scriptures and preach the gospel. So what I want to do this morning is, first of all, talk about hermeneutics and then several hermeneutics that are especially important for for studying the covenants of Scripture so that we as Baptists have uh, clear principles in, in our understanding of coming to the covenants of God in Scripture, our understanding of it. And then I want to finally apply one hermeneutical error that has just arisen really in the last few years um, regarding the Jeremiah passage that has begun to affect Baptists who are reading this error. Uh, so, But let's look at the passage just for a minute and ask some questions. Um, beginning in verse 8 through 12 there, I'm just going to work through it very quickly. It begins with, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord. And I want to know what days is he talking about? Well, you have to have good hermeneutics to figure that out. Like, what is the context? Does he speak of certain days in the context? What does the word day mean? And is it talking about a particular day or a week of days or a period of time? Or, and when does that time come? Does the scripture, in, in, in terms of the context and the broader overview of scripture, scripture, the analogy of faith, Scripture interpreting Scripture, does it say something about what days we're talking about? Well, if you don't understand hermeneutics, you can't come to a conclusion on those days. And then it says, I'll effect a new covenant. And the question is, what's wrong with the old covenant? And how do you determine what the new covenant he's speaking about is? When will it come in those days? And what will it be like? Well, we go on and he says that it's going to be with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Well, is he talking about only those of the uh, physical heritage of Abraham? The house of Israel and the house of Judah? Uh, so that the new covenant is only applied to them? And, and yet it's given in this passage to the Christian church, made up of Jews and Gentiles. So who, who's the new covenant for? And, and is the new covenant uh, given to old Israel alone, or is there a new Israel somewhere in the Bible? Well, you have to study the scriptures and use biblical hermeneutics to define the words, to look at the context, to look at the broader context of scripture, to deal with issues like this being a prophecy. There are special hermeneutics and principles that we all agree on to study prophecy and its fulfillment. And the last error that I'm going to mention today is an error in, a, in, the, in understanding prophecy and fulfillment of this passage. And he says, I'm going to make a new covenant with them, not like the covenant which they broke. They did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. So, what does that mean exactly? Is the Sinai covenant breakable? Yes. Does that mean every covenant is breakable, like the new covenant? Well, that's a question of hermeneutics and how you discern what 
the new covenant is. If it's not like the Sinai covenant, how is it not like it? And if it's new, is it completely new or is it just renewed? And again, the principles of hermeneutics determine that. He says, these are the these are the blessings of the covenant. I will put my laws into their minds. What laws? There's about five different interpretations out there on what laws he's talking about here. Among Calvinistic Baptists. So how do you determine in the text and the original situation where this prophecy was given, which is a hermeneutical principle, what the original author and hearers understood by that word? And what difference does that make on how we understand that word today? And I'm not going to keep going on, but this, you know, it says, I will write my laws on their heart, upon their mind, I will write them out. They shall be my people. They shall all know me from the least to the greatest of them. Does that mean just the knowledge of God will be spread to all the earth? As some interpret this. Or does it mean that every single person of the new covenant will know the Lord personally? Or will they just know about the Lord and then if they call upon the Lord, then they'll know him personally. You know, and, and what what does it mean that I'll forgive their sins and their iniquities? Does that mean every member of the new covenant or just some members of the new covenant? Does God partially forgive sins or forgive all the sins of all who are in the covenant? Or can you receive the forgiveness of sins as a covenant member, and then if you break the covenant, that goes away. You see, the whole issue of understanding covenant theology in the Bible is not about quoting text. It's about the hermeneutics that you apply to interpret those texts before you formulate them into a covenant theology, and especially for Baptists. So my, my belief is that the difference that we have as Baptist covenantal theologians and those who are historic classic covenant theologians in pedo-Baptist life is not different hermeneutical principles. It's the consistent application of agreed-upon principles to the text of Scripture and the resulting formulation of our covenant theology. And so before I go on, I'm challenging pastors and students here to study hermeneutics. And do not get twisted up in all the junk out there where there's about a thousand different schools of hermeneutics that you have to study before you can finally figure out the Bible. Because by the time you finish studying that stuff, you won't come to the simple, clear hermeneutical principles that the Reformers and our Baptist forefathers totally agreed upon in approaching the Scripture. It'll all, it'll all be covered over so much that you won't be able to think clearly. Now, one book that I recommend is Becoming Passé is Principles of Biblical Interpretation by Louis Burkhoff. It's a small book. It's a simple book. But it has a good explanation of the evangelical and reformed hermeneutics that we should use in approaching the Scripture. And frankly... The reason I'm a Baptist is because of trying to apply the hermeneutical principles I was taught in a pedo-Baptist seminary. And I believe, I really believe, or I wouldn't be standing here, I really believe that if, if we will do that, if we will apply those 
hermeneutical principles consistently to particular text and context of Scripture. We'll come out Baptist covenantalists. And it makes a huge difference in our practical ministry as well. But let me go on. Let me just mention some of those hermeneutical principles that everybody agrees to. And and there, one thing that's making this confusing today is that some people are saying, we don't believe those principles. Uh, that that uh, Baptists have invented new principles to help them become Baptists. And, and they're saying, we don't believe some of those principles. For instance, the New Testament is the final revelation of God and the final interpreter of the fulfillment of the Old Testament in it. There are people that are saying, well, you're, you're a dispensationalist if you believe that. But that is exactly what our Reformed brethren have always believed. So it shows the ignorance, not just among Baptists, but among Pedobaptists, of the issue of hermeneutics. You need to study them. You need to... Don't just read a book and say, oh, that's a pretty good argument. What are the hermeneutics of the author as they approach the Scripture? That's where you're going to find how to deal with those texts. Let me just mention a few. The inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. We believe that. That's a given hermeneutic principle. The literal grammatical historical method of Scripture. That we believe in taking the words of Scripture literally as God has spoken them. We take them grammatically as God has communicated them to man through human language. And we take them historically in a certain context that must be understood before we can apply them to our context. Third, the analogy of faith. Scripture must interpret Scripture. Not tradition interpreting Scripture. Not Brother Fred interpreting Scripture for you. But Scripture interpreting Scripture. And I'm convinced that one of the marks of a faithful pastor is that he is willing to step out and say, this I believe, Scripture says. And that he has worked through his theology on the basis of Scripture alone. The perspicuity of Scripture, that Scripture is clear in and of itself enough for the average person to understand what they need to know concerning eternal life and godliness. That's a major principle. If you've got to be a Ph.D. to understand the doctrine of salvation or sanctification or church order and ecclesiology, uh, something's wrong. The unity of Scripture, Old and New Testament, are the word of God and are not contradictory, but complementary to each other. The diversity of Scripture. The very fact that Scripture is given in progressive units of revelation means that we must see that it is diversely given under the different covenants that God has established with man. Everyone believes in unity, though we are accused of not believing that. Ignorantly so, I might say. And everyone believes in diversity, even though some would say, they don't. We all believe these principles. The issue is the application of them. We believe in, in seven, the finality and clarity of the New Testament as the final revelation of God to man till Jesus comes. 
and that it is the most clear revelation explaining, as it says in Hebrews chapter 8, the types and shadows of the Old Testament more clearly in the New Testament. It is not that the Old Testament was unclear as a revelation of God, but it was unclear in its final fulfillment till the New Testament clarified what that meant. Eight, we believe in the priority of the New Testament in terms of the final interpretation of the Old Testament. August, to paraphrase Augustine, the New is in the Old Testament. The New Testament's in the Old Testament concealed in types and shadows. And the old, which had the types and shadows of the new, is revealed in the New Testament. And so the New Testament has a priority in understanding all the scripture, both old and New Testament. Not meaning that it's more the word of God than the old or more important than the old. It is in the flow of revelation that God has determined the priority of New Testament revelation to determine the final issue of the new covenant of Christ and its application to us in this generation, in this age. We need to study the typology of Scripture, number nine. And if you haven't studied typology much, uh, you really need to. That's not allegory. And that's not spiritualizing text, as we see some people do. I'm talking about the true typology of Scripture. That the Old Testament is full of types and shadows of Jesus Christ to come. That are explained in their fullest bloom in the New Testament fulfillment. And this is often a key to understanding uh, not only salvation and the work of Christ, but eschatology. Which is a certainly huge dividing point among Baptists today. So, the typology of Scripture is very important. And... Um, we we need to study those things. I'm not going to go into examples of that. And number 10, and these things are kind of summarized in, the, in my book on baptism, but there is a priority between hermeneutical principles. And frankly, I have found in discussing these principles I'm going to mention here, both with Baptist and pedo-Baptist over the issue of covenant theology and baptism, uh, it's like no one's heard of these things before. And yet they are classic hermeneutics that everyone's supposed to know and use to, uh, to study the Scriptures and to come forth with the interpretation of Scripture that forms our theology. And I, I don't mean nobody with, you know, that's general. But I mean, I found a great deal of ignorance about this. For instance... Um, there's a priority between hermeneutical principles that Dan McCartney at uh, Westminster Seminary has written about in his book, Let the Reader Understand. That's a good book, by the way, and I encourage you to get it. First of all, the near context is more determinative of meaning than the far context. So a statement of Paul should be related to other statements of Paul before being compared to statements of Matthew or Isaiah. Now, that's a principle that keeps us from being proof text in our, in our theology. Let's get our concordance out and list every time a word is used and, and read it that way. And we come up with our doctrine. And I remember talking to um, the fellow from Texas that 
You stoned the oil company. Somebody help me. Well, I'm not going to say his name anyway. But he, he interpreted the parable of the mustard seed as being uh, the birds as being demons that came in and filled the branches one day. I said, where'd you get that? And he said, well, in the Old Testament, it talks about birds sitting on branches. And I said, but that's not the context of the passage. He said, don't you believe God's word? And I said, of course I do, but not like that. You got to have principles of interpretation. The near context is more determinative of meaning than the far context. The author, the chapter, the author, the book, and then the revelation period and, and all that's dealing with that, and then the historical connections and the quotations of Old Testament text, and, and you, you go with all these things. Number two, a didactic or systematic discussion of a subject is more significant for that subject than a historical or descriptive narrative. In other words, if you want to form the doctrine of the church, you don't go to the book of Acts and see that something happened there. Therefore, it must happen always in every church of every age. You go to Ephesians or 1 Corinthians and you study the doctrine of the church discussed about those issues. You don't just say, let's be a New Testament church and study the book of Acts and try to copy it. You go to the doctrinal teachings of Jesus and his apostles about the church and about evangelism and about worship and about church order. And, and you form your doctrine from didactic passages rather than isolating an historical text. Three, under this priority is that the principle that explicit teaching is more significant than supposed implications of a text. Now, everybody believes that right? Wrong. What this is saying is that inference in our study of Scripture concerning a doctrine takes second place to explicit teaching about that doctrine. And that's one of the major hermeneutical principles that everyone believes. This is written by a Presbyterian. Okay? We believe this, and they believe this. But then when it comes to the doctrine of infant baptism, the case of infant baptism and the application of what is a new covenant is decided from inference from Old Testament text rather than the explicit statement of, new t of text about the new covenant, and in particular, the final clear revelation of God about it. We all have the same principles. It's the issue of application. Literal passages, number four, are more determinative than symbolic ones. And this is why I'm so disturbed about D Doug Wilson and... Randy Booth and some others who take the, the figure of the vine and the fruit from John 15, the figure of the uh, olive tree and the branches from Romans 11, and use these symbolic passages 
as authority to define the new covenant as breakable by members. It's a violation of hermeneutics. It's like, but I read it and I say, but wait a minute. And, and people are being led along by these errors in hermeneutics and don't realize that no one's supposed to believe that. Literal passages are more determinative than symbolic ones. That's a very formulative principle for biblical hermeneutics. Number five, later passages reflect a fuller revelation than earlier. Now, you might say, well, that's a duh question, but it's not. If it's given later, doesn't that mean God's given more, fuller revelation? Yes. But that doesn't mean you take the later revelation and reinterpret the former one by it. And, and so we have principles of hermeneutics we all agree on. The issue is the application and all of these priorities that we've just discussed on number 10 there are important to the discussion of the biblical text when formulating the study of God's covenants in Scripture. And I believe that these priorities are ignored by many pedo-baptists when they formulate their covenant theology, and especially when they define the nature and the content and the fulfillment of the new covenant. One illustration of consistently applying these principles, I believe, is in trying to define what is a biblical covenant. And some of the older authors, like Vitzius, would say that uh, a covenant is an agreement between two or more persons with um, uh, stipulations which determine blessing or cursing on the keeping or breaking of that covenant. And taking that covenant and applying it to all the co- that definition of covenant and applying it to all the covenants of Scripture. And that's part of the method of the older classic covenantalists. But you have people like John Owen that comes along and he says, no, every covenant has to be taken in the context in which it is given. Now, that is hermeneutics. And therefore, you must not assume that one covenant takes on the characteristics of a covenant that is given in another place. That no elements of a covenant should be assumed, but those which are given by precept of that covenant. Which means that you can't take one definition of a covenant that has blessing and cursing and conditional elements and a mutual agreement between two or more persons and apply that to all the covenants of Scripture. Noah didn't have any stipulations to obey. The Lord Jesus Christ gave a new covenant prophesied in Jeremiah 31 and fulfilled in Hebrews chapter 8 and in his statement at the Lord's Supper. This is the new covenant in my blood, but there's no stipulations of breaking that covenant or cursing for breaking that covenant to a member in the text about it. 
We have to let the Scripture in each period of Revelation determine the content of those covenants and be careful of inferring from one to the other. That's a That should be what every pedo-baptist and baptist does when they approach the Scripture, as John Owen did. This means that the new covenant does not have to be a conditional covenant that is breakable by its members. Just because it was so at Sinai. The Sinai covenant is a subsidiary covenant to the Abrahamic covenant that had stipulations that must be kept for blessing or cursing. But it says the new covenant is not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. We have to be very careful in forming our covenant theology to apply consistent hermeneutics about each covenant so that we will not, by inference, overrule explicit statement. Another example of an error that our our fellow or brothers in Peter Baptist covenantal theology make is inferring that the new covenant is a physically genealogical covenant for its members and their children, as was the Abrahamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Sinai covenant, and the Davidic covenant. But the New Testament explains that the physical genealogical element of these Old Testament covenants of promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The final physical seed of Abraham, the one to whom the promises were made, and it's fulfilled in him as the covenant head of his family. with his children being those who are of faith. But if you infer from the Old Testament covenant over the explicit statement of the New Testament revelation, who are the seed of Jesus, then you'll have to baptize your infants versus baptizing those who are of faith. And you'll form the dividing line between, ecclesiastically, between brethren, one way or the other. So hermeneutics is extremely important in how we interpret the covenants of God and how they're fulfilled. Well, um, I think what I'll do is, is skip over some stuff I had for us to look at, but go to a principle, I mean to an illustration of, I believe, violating the hermeneutical principles that we generally agree upon. And when we apply these hermeneutical principles to the New Covenant prophecy of Jeremiah, we Baptists come away with an understanding of the New Covenant in its text and context, which is... um, 
clearly effectual in its establishment and in its continuation and consummation. That is, in the text of the New Covenant, we find that every member of that covenant, whoever Israel and Judah is, has the law written on their heart, possesses the forgiveness of sins, and knows God in the clear sense of Scripture salvifically. They know the Lord. And so we find a new covenant that we look at with the normal principles of hermeneutics in its Old Testament context and say Jeremiah and his people are looking for a day when a new covenant will be established, not like the old covenant, in which every member will have their heart circumcised. Every member will have the law of God. That is the covenant law of the ten words written upon it. Every one of those new covenant members will have and possess the forgiveness of sins. And everyone will know the Lord personally. Whenever that new covenant is established after those days, that's what it'll look like. That's what we believe as Baptists. But pedo-Baptists don't believe that. Let me go to an illustration of what I'm talking about. Recently, Richard Pratt of Reform Seminary applied the principle that is sometimes used and has become more popular. The principle of theological interpretation or theological hermeneutics called already not yet. Already not yet. And this has always been a part of Reformed hermeneutics, by the way. But it became popular or widely spread among evangelicals uh, more recently through the work of George Eldon Ladd. And then it's kind of become the discussion of evangelical theology. What does the already establishment of Christ's kingdom and new covenant mean versus its not yet fulfillment? And, of course, everyone believes that. We believe the new covenant is established now. We believe the kingdom of God has become now. And we all believe that that kingdom and covenant will be consummated and greatly fulfilled in glory. That's not an issue. We've always believed that. But let me read to you what Richard Pratt is saying about that. He uses the principle of already not yet to deny the full establishment of the new covenant already. The Jeremiah 31 passage particularly. And he reserves the true fulfillment as an effectual covenant for every member, where every member has the full blessings of the covenant. He reserves its true fulfillment in the not yet future. Of the consummation of all things. He admits that the new covenant is unbreakable. According to the Jeremiah prophecy. And that's something Baptists have been arguing for several centuries. And it's nice to finally come across a Presbyterian that agrees with us. That in the Jeremiah prophecy. 
The new covenant's unbreakable by any of its members. He believes that. And he admits that every participant of the new covenant possesses all the blessings of that covenant. But he reserves the fulfillment of the unbreakable nature of that covenant to the future consummation of all things, not now. Therefore, he permits the present inauguration and continuation phase of the new covenant in the already time to be breakable by covenant members who do not possess the realized blessings of that new covenant. And in doing this, he presents the best challenge I've read to the Baptist position on covenant theology. That the new covenant is inaugurated and continued, but with every member presently receiving the covenant blessings, though imperfectly fulfilled, and therefore is unbreakable in the already. Baptists reserve the not yet phase of the new covenant to the glorification of every already member. That's the difference. Let's see, brother, what time am I supposed to finish? I've forgotten. Help me. At 10.30. Okay, well, I'm okay for 10 minutes. Okay? Give you a half hour. Now, Pratt begins by affirming that all evangelicals agree that the new covenant is fulfilled in the New Testament era. And he gives a great summary of the Baptist position. It's like we finally have found someone that understands what we're saying. And he says that the sign of baptism, if the new covenant is unbreakable to infants, the sign of baptism to infants is not appropriate. That it needs to be given only to those who show evidence of the forgiveness of sins, the law and the heart, and who know the Lord. And you could almost read this portion of Pratt's statement and say, that's, I could use that to teach Baptist covenant theology. He finally understands. But then he slips out like, you know, it's like jello. It just kind of slips away when you're trying to put your finger on it. You say, I've got him. And then he just slips away. He agrees that the new covenant is not like the Mosaic covenant, which could be broken. He agrees that it is effectual and will not end in failure. He agrees, contrary to many pedo Baptists, that it is a brand new covenant administration of God's grace in history. But then... Arguing that the new covenant is a prophecy, he argues that it is fulfilled in the inauguration, the continuance, and the consummation phases. And in the inaugurated phase, the new covenant can be broken because in the inauguration phase, the genealogical principle of believers and their children apply to the formation of the church. And he asks questions. How can you say the new covenant is really fulfilled and established when 
some true Christians still have sin in their hearts. The law's not written on their heart completely. Or he may say, yes, Christians know the Lord, but they don't know him perfectly. So the new covenant is just inaugurated. It's not established in its effectual nature to glory. And trying to answer Pratt's already not yet argument, Baptists affirm with Pratt that the fullness of the New Testament, New Covenant consummation is yet to come. We have no essential argument with that. Nor do we disagree, as he teaches, that there will be a separation between sheep and goats at that consummation. What we disagree with is his limited concept of inauguration. Baptists believe that the inauguration of the new covenant in its establishment by Christ requires that the elements of that new covenant are established at that redemptive point in time somehow. And that every covenant member, to some degree, knows the Lord, yet not perfectly has the law, the ten words, written upon their heart to some degree, even though they have spiritual warfare in the continuation stage. And that they all know the Lord in some way. So the issue of spiritual warfare in the continuation phase of the New Covenant does not deny the reality of the establishment of those revealed Blessings to every covenant member, though imperfectly. And so Pratt has set up an artificial requirement that the new covenant is not really fulfilled until every member receives the blessings of those of that covenant perfectly. Now. This argument is from results, not from institution. And what I want to do at this point is explain the great hermeneutical era of Pratt in interpreting the New Covenant passage. And what he does is he goes back to the parables of Jesus. We believe, as everyone does, that the kingdom of, or every covenantalist believes, including progressive dispensationalists now, that the kingdom of God is established when Jesus comes. But it is not fully consummated till he comes again. We believe that. So when we look at the kingdom parables, we're looking at Jesus' explanation of the establishment of his kingdom and its nature until he comes again. And you can find that stream flowing through most of the parables, especially the eschatological parables. But here's what Pratt does. He takes the parable of the mustard seed. That the kingdom of God is like one who sows a mustard seed. And that mustard seed is small in the beginning. But one day it grows into a full tree where the birds of the air come in and nest and are fed. And, of course, there's a multitude of interpretations of this parable, including the previous one I mentioned. And what it's really meaning is 
The kingdom of God starts out small and it goes to the Jew first. But boy, it's going to take in all nations. Here's the way Pratt interprets it. The mustard seed of the kingdom starts out small. And it finally takes in, that is, the kingdom takes in Jew and Gentile from all over the world. Regenerate and unregenerate. And that at the final day, Christ will sift the wheat from the tares in the kingdom and in the church. He will separate the sheep from the goats in the church and the kingdom. He uses the parable of the wheat and the tares. And like many pedo-baptists, he says, the field is the church. The wheat and the tares are growing up in the church, and therefore it's okay to have a mixed multitude in the New Testament or New Covenant church, because the New Covenant is a mixed fulfillment now, and is breakable by the tares. But the problem is hermeneutics, because you cannot study the parable of the wheat and the tares and come up with the traditional pedo-baptist interpretation that the field is the church and that Christ comes to separate the wheat from the tares one day in the church, permitting the church to be a mixed multitude, including the baptism of infants who may be unregenerate. Hermeneutics makes a huge difference. And so the hermeneutics that we all believe in when consistently applied to the parable of the wheat and the tares and the parable of the mustard seed come out with a completely different interpretation of the new covenant and the church than Pratt holds. The fact is that the new covenant has been established in redemptive history as the only operating redemptive covenant in time. And we are living in the days of the new covenant establishment. Which means that we have to look at the revelation concerning the new covenant to determine what its elements are and how it is administered by the sovereign. And we do not have the liberty to say, I know it says that everyone in the new covenant has the law written on the heart and knows the Lord and has the forgiveness of sins, but it really doesn't mean that now. Pratt erroneously uses 1 John 2.19 to describe covenant breakers in the church. They went out from us, but they really did not belong to us. For if they would belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. 1 John 2.19 And he uses this verse to justify covenant breakers. In the New Covenant Church. But all this passage really explains is that they were never in the New Covenant community to begin with. In fact, it says they did not really belong to us. So how could they be covenant breakers? 
They did not really belong to us. They were not part of the new covenant community, even though they were a part of the visible church. And this same idea is used in Hebrews 10.29 by covenantalists to describe people who once were in the new covenant, but who broke it by trampling on the blood of Christ. Yet that is a disputed text. Those who have regarded unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And they claim this is a new covenant member that has broken the covenant and has apostatized. But the problem with is with that is that there are at least three major pedo-baptist interpretations of that text, none of which teach covenant breaking. And you cannot let an unclear text rule over the analogy of Scripture that clarifies the meaning of the text. So Pratt is to be commended on many fronts because he has finally stated the Baptist position in a way that Peter Baptists finally understand. And that is that we believe the new covenant is an effectual covenant to which he agrees. agrees. And for that reason, in its establishment, Christ and his apostles have determined that those who profess to be members of that new covenant must repent and believe the gospel and be baptized. And that the new covenant church is to be made up of baptized followers of Christ who profess to have the new covenant blessings. And they alone. We believe that the new covenant In fact, I glory in the truth that every new covenant member will be glorified. Frankly, I just can't wait. I'm so tired of this old body and tired of the spiritual warfare of this old mind and heart. And frankly, I'm tired of the spiritual warfare of the people of God. I'm just tired. And boy, it's going to be great. When we soar in the freedom of the sons of God, never to sin again. But for right now, God has begun a new work in our hearts and calls us to love his law. For right now, he's given us the promise of the forgiveness of sins and their eradication one day. And right now, through Jesus Christ, we know the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit though imperfectly, and though in part. But one day we shall know as we are now fully known. Let us not diminish the new covenant as the dispensationalists do to simply an establishment for some people in some way at this time. But let us see the glory of the coming of Jesus Christ to make all things new beginning now. For if any man is in Christ, the head of the covenant, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away and all things have become new. And they aren't perfect yet, but they're new. To form a Baptist theology 
we must follow the accepted hermeneutics more faithfully than our other brethren. And our refusal to allow the Old Testament inference to overrule New Testament instituted revelation of sacraments is the primary dividing issue between us. And we believe, therefore, that the new covenant is established in redemptive history according to its revelation about itself and the revelation of the New Testament about its fulfillment. So we take the positive institution of the baptizing of New Covenant disciples alone to be the formation of the New Covenant Church, making it a gathered assembly of disciples. And we teach those disciples who have the law written on their heart, though imperfectly, to love Christ and keep his commandments. And we build New Covenant Churches because we believe it's really come. Thank you for listening to this week's Sermon Select on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CVTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.